We're back again. It's Chase and Josh with Factor Fantasy. That's Chase and I'm Josh, and we're here to give you part two of Lord of the Rings and the Two Towers today, where we are going to be covering chapters 7 through chapters 11. And this has some of the biggest action that we've come to this point in the series, so we're going to be really excited to kind of carry you through there. I know we kind of teased it earlier talking about it, and I'm actually going to go ahead and do a little bit of... Uh, uh, story time when we get to it. Uh, Helm's Deep, it's finally upon us. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about things that lead up to it. And then we're going to go through there and kind of the, the immediate aftermath and where the kind of the story goes from here. This is like a big tipping point, in my opinion, in, in the book. So, uh, but before we kind of jump into it, I'll turn the floor to Chase to say a few words and then we'll get started. Looking forward to this one, man. It's good stuff. I, I guess you can kind of say. Uh, one of the f- major focal key points of uh, this book, The Two Towers here. And uh, what I really liked about uh, the chapters we're covering today, I was really interested. It was really intriguing. It was action-packed in the very beginning. And even when it uh, kind of really picks up on intricate detail, it's really interesting stuff. So uh, i got a good one planned for you today. And uh, Jay Nelly is going to kick us off here, man. Sounds like a plan. Uh, you know, before we get started, we always do a quick little recap of where we're at, just in case you missed last week's episode. So some really big things that happened last week. We had Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli kind of tracking Merry and Pippin and that big orc horde that was kidnapping them, taking them to Isengard. And that we had the weird little three separate factions of orcs. We had the ones from the Mines of Moria, we had the ones from Isengard, and we had the ones from Mordor, all kind of wanting to do a different thing, and their their tension and friction kind of worked against them, and we found out that, like, the, the Rohirrim, like, Aomer's people, their side of, like, the, the east side of the, the Rohirrim were able to take out the orcs, and Merry and Pippin were able to escape into the forest. Really cool moment happened there as well, where we were introduced to the Ents, which was really awesome. <laughs> that was really cool. Uh, we talked a little bit about that last week. And then on top of that, we were reintroduced to an old character, come back a little bit newer, and like the new and improved version. You know, Gandalf the Grey is what we started out with. We now have Gandalf the White. He's back in the fold. That's huge. Uh, they went and took a trip to Rohan to talk to King Theoden. He was a shell of himself, you know, Wormtongue was spreading all these lies and, you know, his little uh, poison tongues into him and making it so he was, uh, like I said, like just a shell of his former self. It wasn't exactly like the movies where, you know, Saruman invaded his mind, but it was very much like a, a big negative oppressive energy and they went there, they relieved him of that and now Thaden's back and they decided to uh, make, they wanted to go ahead and meet the orc army head on at first and they're making their way towards that area in Dunharrow where eventually we're going to get into where we're talking about today when I mentioned Helm's Deep. So that's a little bit about where we left off last week. We're about to jump in here today. Let's raise our glasses in the air for a little toast, a little Malice in the Chalice for the boys, and then we're going to jump on into it. Malice in the Chalice, man. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, brother. All right. So the first chapter we're going to cover today is called Helm's Deep. And there's a few things that I'll talk about before I just kind of take it away from the big battle, right? So I wanted to start out here right on page 141. There's this, like, small middle paragraph. And it talks about, like, potentially uh, Mordor is also involved in this as well. And this is just interesting because I don't remember this being any part of the case. This was specifically supposed to be the orcs and Urukai and goblins from Isengard, right? And also the, the wild men as well. But... Basically, here's it is. It says, and behind us, 
comes a very storm of Mordor, said Gandalf. It will be a black night. So that was interesting how there was a little like allusion to you know Mordor could be involved in this this specific uh, action here. But when it, in reality, like not in reality, I guess you know in the films it really kind of just detailed Isengard, and so I guess I kind of forgot about it. Uh, then you know kind of to go through later down the page in 141. I want to read the last paragraph. Uh, it starts here. It says. He came a weary man with a dinted helm and a cloven shield. Slowly he climbed from his horse, and he stood there a while, gasping. At length he spoke, Is Aomer here? You come at last, but too late, and with too little strength. Things have gone evilly since Theodred fell. We were driven back yesterday over the Eisen with great loss. Many perished at the crossing. Then at night, fresh forces came over the river against our camp. All Isengard must be emptied, and Saruman has armed the wild hillmen and herdfolk of Dunlin beyond the rivers, and these also he is loosed upon us. We were overmastered. The shield wall was broken. Erkenbrand of Westhold has drawn off those men he could gather towards his fastness and helms deep. The rest are scattered. Where is Eomer? Tell him there is no hope ahead. He should return to Edoras before the wolves of Isengard come there. Theoden had sat silent, hidden from the man's sight, behind his guards. Now he urged his horse forward. Come, stand before me, Siorl. He said, I am here. The last host of the Eorlings has risen forth, and I will now return without battle. And the man's face lightened with joy and wonder. He drew himself up, then he knelt, offering his notched sword to the king. Command me, lord, he cried, and pardon me. I thought, you thought, I remained in Medusel, bent like an old tree under winter's snow. And so it was when he rode to war. But a west wind has shaken the boughs, said Theoden. Give this man a fresh horse. And let us ride to the help of Erkenbrand. So, thought that was pretty cool there. To kind of continue on, a few other things I wanted to talk about. Basically, the, the, the scouts came back to inform the king that the wolf riders and the orcs waylaid Erkenbrand, like, which is like the riders of the Westfold, right? So there was different ones, like the Eastfold was with like, Eomir, and like the Westfold was with uh, Erkenbrand, and I think at one point it was with Theodred before Theodred died, which was obviously King Theoden's son. So, uh, you know, the, the, the report was like many men were slain. And there was a rumor that Wormtongue himself went north with the orcs, and that's going to kind of play into a foreshadow later on of what comes of him, uh, you know, in just a little bit. So then uh, page 144, like, the main strength of the enemy's army is many times as great as Rohan has. Like, it, it, it kind of really gives us this feeling that we're screwed, you know? Like, like they, we just don't have the numbers. We just don't have the men to be able to survive this big encounter. And it was interesting because they, initially, Theoden had went forth to battle, as in like in the open field. And then, because of what the reports had told him, and they had to go to Helm's Deep, he's like, "All right, well, we're going to make our stand at Helm's Deep all together." So, thought that was pretty cool. Um, but at least they they did say that they are well provisioned with food and livestock, and I think that's going to that that itself is really really huge. Just because, like, that's another thing you have to battle. You could, like, hold out a siege for as long as you can. As long as you've got, like, food and provisions and making sure you guys can stay, like, alive. <laughs> uh, it, that, you know, takes care of half the battle. There is one thing in, you know, we'll probably mention this more when we talk about the differences between the film and the novel. But there was no crazy part where, like, the wolves of Isengard attacked Theoden in their large party. And, like, that one part where, like, Aragorn was presumed dead before the battle and he comes back in. Like, like I was, like, waiting for that and I was waiting to read that and it just never happened. So, honestly, it's kind of a cool addition about the movie. And, like I said, we'll probably talk about that more at length there. I just wanted to, like, mention that didn't actually happen in the novel. So, it was interesting. I was, re- I was looking for it when I was reading and it just never came. So, kind of cool. 
and then this is where it says, like, after midnight, the Battle of Helm's Deep began. And Aomer was there fighting alongside Aragorn from the start of the battle, where in the movie, it was Gandalf that brought, like, the rest of the Rohirrim behind the orcs. So I thought that that was, like, a little bit interesting. Uh, that they kind of changed who they brought. And here's another thing, too, about the... Again, not going too much into differences, but if you guys remember, in the movie of Helm's Deep, like, there was a few of the elves that came to help out. And even one of the big main elves in there ended up perishing in the Battle of Helm's Deep. No elves came to the assistance here in the novel. There was just... It was just Rohan and eventually who came behind, like, Gandalf there. So, like, I wanted to put that out there just because it was different where in the movie... Gandalf, he like banished Aomer. Like, uh, Warm Tongue's like, you have seen much, <laughs> Aomer. <laughs> He's like, and they, they, they kicked Aomer out and said he couldn't come back for the like, pain of death. Like, he would, he would be killed if he came back. He, he banished him. And that's where Gandalf had gone, is to go get the Rohirrim with Aomer, where it's not the same here. And Aomer is there from the beginning in the battle with Aragorn, which is not the case in the film. So I thought that was another t- difference to touch on. But now I'll go into and read the full battle of Helm's Deep, and I'm going to give it all the, uh, all the voice inflections, all the fun that I got in this, so we're going deep into it. So it's going to start out here on page 148. I'll go ahead and start. It was now past midnight. The sky was utterly dark, and the stillness of the heavy air foreboded storm. Suddenly, clouds were seared by a blinding flash. Branch lightning smote down upon the eastward hills, and for a staring moment, the watchers on the wall saw all the spaces between them, and the dike lit with white light. It was a boiling and crawling with black shapes, some squat and broad, some tall and grim, with high helms and sable shields. Hundreds and hundreds more were pouring over the dike and through the breach. The dark tide flowed up the walls from cliff to cliff. Thunder rolled in the valley, and rain came lashing down. Arrows, thick as the rain, came whistling over the battlements and fell, clinking and glancing on the stones. Some found their mark. The assault on Helm's Deep had begun. But no sound or challenge was heard within. No answering arrows came. The assailing hosts halted, foiled by the silent menace of rock and wall. Ever and again the lightning tore aside the darkness. Then the orcs screamed, waving spear and sword, and a shooting a cloud of arrows at anything that stood revealed upon the battlements. And the men of the mark, amazed, looked out, as it seemed to them, upon a great field of dark corn, tossed by a tempest of war, and every ear glinted with barbed light. Brazen trumpets sounded, the enemy surged forward, some against the deeping wall, others towards the causeway and the ramp that led up to the Hornburg gates. There the hugest orcs were mustered and the wild men of the Dunlin fells. A moment they hesitated, and then on they came. The lightning flashed and blazoned upon every helm, and shield, the ghastly hand of Isengard was seen. They reached the summit of the rock. They drove towards the gates. Then at last an answer came. A storm of arrows met them, and a hail of stones. They wavered, broke, and fled back, and then charged again, broke, and charged again. And each time, like the incoming sea, they halted at a higher point. Again trumpets rang, and a press of roaring men leaped forth. They held their great shields above them like a roof, while in their midst they bore two trunks of mighty trees. Behind them, orc archers crowded, sending hails of darts against the bowmen on the walls. They gained the gates. The trees, swung by strong arms, smote the timbers with a rending boom. If any men fell, crushed by a stone hurtling from above, two others sprung forth to take his place. Again and again, the great rams swung and crashed. Aomer and Aragorn stood together on the deeping wall. They heard the roar of voices and the thudding of the rams. Then, in a sudden flash of light, they beheld the peril of the gates. 
Come, said Aragorn, this is the hour we draw swords together. And running like fire, they sped along the wall, and up the steps and passed into the outer court upon the rock. As they ran, they gathered a handful of stout swordsmen. There was a small postern door that opened in an angle of the berg wall on the west, where the cliffs stretched out to meet it. On that side, a narrow path ran around towards the great gate between the wall and the sheer brink of the rock. Together, Eomer and Aragorn sprang through the door, their men close behind. The two swords flashed from the sheath as one. "'Guthwine!' cried Eomer. "'Guthwine for the mark!' "'And Duriel!' cried Aragorn. "'And Duriel for the Dunedain!' And charging from the side, they hurled themselves upon the wild men. And Duriel rose and fell, gleaming with a white fire. A shout went up from the wall and tower. And Duriel, and Duriel goes to war. The blade that was broken shines again. Dismayed, the rammers let fall the trees and turned to fight. But the wall of their shields was broken, as by a lightning stroke they were swept away, hewn down, or cast over the rock into the stony stream below. The orc archers shot wildly, then fled. For a moment, Eomir and Aragorn halted before the gates. The thunder was rumbling in the distance now. The lightning flickered still, far off among the mountains in the south. A keen wind was blowing from the north again. The clouds were torn and drifting, and stars peeped out, and above the hills of the coombe side, the westering moon rode, glimmering yellow in the storm rack. We did not come too soon, said Aragorn, looking at the gates. Their great hinges and iron bars were wrenched and bent, and many of their timbers were cracked. Yet we cannot stay here beyond the wall to defend them, said Eomer. Look, he pointed to the causeway. Already a great press of orcs and men were gathering again beyond the stream. Arrows whined and skipped on the stones about them. Come, we must get back and see what we can do now to pile stone and beam across the gates within. Come now. And they turned and ran, and at that moment some dozen orcs that had lain motionless among the slain leaped to their feet and came silently and swiftly behind. Two flung themselves to the ground at Eomer's heels, tripped him, and in a moment they were on top of him. But a small dark figure that none had observed sprang out of the shadows and gave a hoarse shout, Baruch Kazad, Kazad Amenu! And an axe swung and swept back. Two orcs fell headless. The rest fled. Eomer struggled to his feet, even as Aragorn ran back to his aid. The postern was closed again, and the iron door was barred and piled inside with stone. When all were safe within, Eomer turned. I thank you, Gimli, son of Gloin, he said. I did not know you were with us in the sortie, but oft the unbidden guest proves the best company. How came you there? I followed you to shake off sleep, said Gimli, but I looked on the hillmen, and they seemed over-large for me, so I sat behind a stone to see your sword play. I shall not find it easy to repay you, said Eomer. There may be a chance before the night is over, laughed the dwarf. I am content. Till now I have hewn naught but wood since I left Moria. Two, said Gimli, patting his axe. He had returned to his place on the wall. Two, said Legolas. I have done better, though now I must grope for spent arrows. All mine are gone. Yet I make my tale twenty at the least, but that is only a few leaves in a forest. The sky was now quickly clearing and the sinking moon was shining brightly, but the light brought little hope to the riders of the mark. The enemy before them seemed to have grown rather than diminished, and still more were pressing up from the valley through the breach. The sortie upon the rock gained only a brief respite. The assault on the gates was redoubled. Against the deeping wall, the hosts of Isengard roared like a sea. Orcs and hillmen swarmed about its feet from end to end. Ropes with grappling hooks were hurled over the parapet faster than men could cut them or fling them back. Hundreds of long ladders were lifted up. Many were cast down in ruin, but many more replaced them and orcs sprang up like apes in the dark forest of the south before the wall's foot of the dead and broken were piled like shingles in a storm. Ever higher rose the hideous mounds, and still the enemy came on. The men of Rohan grew weary. All their arrows were spent. Every shaft was shot. Their swords were notched, and shields were riven. Three times Aragorn and Eomer rallied them, and three times Anduriel flamed in a desperate charge that drove the enemy from behind the wall. 
Then a clamor arose in the deep behind. Orcs had crept like rats through the culvert through which the stream flowed out. There had been gathered in the shadows of the cliffs until the assault above was the hottest, and nearly all the men the defense had rushed to the wall's top. Then they sprang out, already someone passed into the jaws of the deep, and were among the horses fighting with the guards. Down from the wall up Gimli with a fierce cry that echoed in the cliffs, Kazan, Kazan, he soon had work enough. Ayo, he shouted, the orcs behind the wall. Ayo, come, Legolas, there are enough for both of us. Kazan, I'm in you. And gambling, the old looked down from the hornbird, hearing the great voice of the dwarf above all the tumult. The orcs are in the deep, he cried. Helm, helm, forth, Helmingus, he shouted, and he leaped down from the stair from the rock with many men of Westfold at his back. Their onset was fierce and sudden, and the orcs gave way before them. Before long, they were hemmed in the narrows of the gorge, and all were slain or driven shrieking into the chasm of the deep to fall before the guardians of the hidden caves. Twenty-one, cried Gimli, as he hewed a two-handed stroke and laid the last orc before his feet. Now my count passes Master Legolas again. We must stop this rat hole, said Gambling. Dwarves are said to be cunning folk with stone. Lend us your aid, Master. We do not shape stone with battle axes, nor with the fingernails, said Gimli, but I will help as I may. And they gathered such small boulders and broken stone as they could find to hand, and under Gimli's direction, the Westfold then blocked up the inner end of the culvert until only a narrow outlet remained. Then the deeping stream, swolled by the rain, churned and fretted in its choked path, and spread slowly into cold pools from cliff to cliff. It will be drier above, said Gimli. Come, Gambling, let us see how things go on the wall. He climbed up and found Legolas beside Aragorn and Aomer. The elf was wetting his long knife. There was for a lull uh, in the assault, since the attempt to break in the culvert had been foiled. Twenty-one, said Gimli. Good, said Legolas, but my count is now two dozen. It has been knife work up here. Elmer and Aragorn leant warily on their swords. Away on the left, the crash and clamor of the battle on the rock rose loud again, but the Hornburg still held fast like an island in the sea. Its gates lay in ruin, but over the barricade of beams and stones, no enemy has yet passed. Aragorn looked at the pale stars and at the moon, now sloping behind the western hills that enclose a valley. This is a night as long as years, he said. How long will the day tarry? Dawn is not far off, said Gamling, who had now climbed up beside him. But dawn will not help us, I fear. Yet dawn is ever the hope of men, said Aragorn. But these creatures of Isengard, these half-orcs and goblin men, that foul craft of Sauron has bred, they will not quail at the sun, said Gamling, and neither will the wild men of the hills. Do you not hear their voices? I hear them, said Eomer, but they are only the scream of birds and the bellowing of beasts to my ears. Yet there are many that cry in the Dunland tongue, said Gamling. I know that tongue. It is an ancient speech of men, and once was spoken in many western valleys of the mark. Hark, they hate us, and they are glad for our doom seems certain to them. The king, the king, they cry, we will take their king. Death to the foregoyle, death to the strawheads, death to the robbers of the north. Such names they have for us. Not in half a thousand years have they forgotten their grievance that the lords of Gondor gave the mark to Eorl, the young, and made an alliance with him. That old hatred Saruman has inflamed. They are a fierce folk when roused. They will not give way for dusk or dawn until Thaden is taken or they themselves are slain. Nonetheless, the day will bring hope to me, said Aragorn. Is it not said that no foe has ever taken the Hornburg, if men defended it? So the minister will say, said Yomer. Then let us defend it and hope, said Aragorn. And even as they spoke, there came a blare of trumpets. Then there was a crash and a flash of flame and smoke. The waters of the deeping stream poured out, hissing and foaming. They would choke no longer. A gaping holes blasted in the wall, and a host of dark shapes poured in. Devilry of Saruman, cried Aragorn. They have crept in the culvert again while we talked. 
they have lit the fire of Orthanc beneath our feet. Elendil, Elendil, he shouted, and he leapt down into the breach. But even as he did so, a hundred ladders were raised against the battlements. Over the wall and under the wall, the last assault came sweeping like a dark wave upon a hill of sand. The defense was swept away. Some of the riders were driven back further and further into the deep, falling and fighting as they gave way step by step towards the caves. Others cut their way back towards the citadel. A broad stairway climbed from the deep up to the rock in the rear gate of the Hornburg. Near the bottom stood Aragorn. In his hand, still, Anduriel cleaved, and in the terror of the sword, for a while held back the enemy, as one by one, all who could gain the stair passed up towards the gate. Behind the upper steps knelt Legolas. His bow was bent, but one gleaned arrow was all that he had left. He peered out now, ready to shoot the first orc that should dare approach the stair. All who can have now got safe within, Aragorn, he called, come back. Aragorn turned and swept up the stair, but as he ran, he stumbled in his wariness. At once, his enemies leapt forward. Up came the orcs, yelling with their long arms stretched out to seize him. The foremost fell with Legolas's last arrow in his throat, but the rest sprang over him. Then a great boulder cast from the outer wall above crashed down upon the stair and hurled them back into the deep. Aragorn gained the door, and swiftly it clanged to behind him. "'Things go ill, my friends,' he said, wiping the sweat from his brow with his arm. "'Ill enough,' said Legolas, "'but not yet hopeless while we have you with us. "'Where is Gimli?' Do not know, said Aragorn. I last saw him fighting on the ground beyond the wall, but the enemy swept us apart. Alas, that is evil news, said Legolas. He is stout and strong, said Aragorn. Let us hope that he will escape back to the caves. There he will be safe for a while, safer than we. Such a refuge would be to the liking of a dwarf. That must be my hope, said Legolas, but I wish that he had come this way. I desire to tell Master Gimli that my tale is now thirty-nine. If he wins back to the caves, he will pasture count again, laughed Aragorn. Never did I see an axe so wielded. I must go and seek some arrows, said Legolas. Would that this night would end, and I could have better light for shooting. Aragorn now passed into the citadel. There to his dismay he learned that Aomer had not reached the Hornburg. Nay, he did not come to the rock, said one of the Westfold men. I last saw him gathering men about him and fighting in the mouth of the deep. Gambling was with him and the dwarf, but I could not come to them. Aragorn strode on through the inner court and mounted a high chamber in the tower. There stood the king, dark against the narrow window, looking upon the veil. "'What is this news, Aragorn?' he said. "'The deeping wall is taken, lord, and all the defense swept away. But many have escaped hither to the rock. Is Yomer here?' "'No, lord. But many of your men retreated into the deep, and some say that Yomer was amongst them. And in the narrows they may hold back the enemy and come within the caves. What, what hope they may have, then I do not know. "'More than we. Good provision, it is said.' and the air is wholesome there because of the outlets to fissures in the rock far above. None can force an entrance against the determined men, but they may hold out long. But the orcs have brought a devilry from Orthanc, said Aragorn. They have a blasting fire, and with it they took out the wall. If they cannot come in the caves, they may seal up those that are inside. But now we must turn all our thought to our own defense. I fret in this prison, said Theoden. If I could have set a spear in rest riding before my men upon the field, maybe I could have felt the joy of battle again, and so ended. But I serve little purpose here. Here you were least guarded in the strongest facets of the mark, said Aragorn. More hope we have to defend you in the Hornburg than in Edoras, or even Dunharrow in the mountains. It is said that the Hornburg has never fallen to assault, said Theoden, but now my heart is doubtful. The world changes, and all that once was strong now proves unsure. How shall we in any tower withstand such numbers and such reckless hate? Had I known that the strength of Isengard was grown so great, maybe I should not so rashly have ridden forth to meet for all the arts of Gandalf, his counsel seems now not so good as it did under the morning sun. Do not judge the counsel of Gandalf until it is all over, Lord, said Aragorn. 
The end will not be long, said the king. But here, I will take in like an old badger in a trap, snowmane and hands full, and the horses of my guard in the inner court. When the dawn comes, I will bid my men and sound the horn, and I will ride forth. Will you ride with me, son of Arathorn? Maybe we shall cleave a road, or make such an end that's worth a song, if any be left to sing of us hereafter. I will take the ride with you. Taking his leave, he returned to the wall and passed round the circuit, entertaining the men and lending aid wherever the assault was hot. Legolas went with him. Blasts of fire leapt from below, shaking the stones. Grappling hooks were hurled and ladders raised. Again and again, the orcs gained the summit of the outer wall, and again defenders cast him down. At last, Aragorn stood above the great gates, heedless of the darts of the enemy. As he looked forth, he saw the eastern sky grown pale. Then he raised his empty hand, palm outward in token of parley. The orcs yelled and jeered. Come down, come down, they cried. If you wish to speak to us, come down. Bring out your king. We are the fighting Urukai. We will fetch him from this hole if he does not come. Bring out your skulking king. The king stays or comes at his own will, said Aragorn. Then what are you doing here, they answered. Why do you look out? Do you wish to see the greatness of our army? We are the fighting Urukai. I looked out to see the dawn, said Aragorn. What of the dawn, they jeered. We are the Urukai. We do not stop fighting for night or day or fair weather or storm. We come to kill by sun or moon. What of the dawn? None knows what the day shall bring him, said Aragorn. Get you gone before it turn you to evil. Get down or we will shoot you from the wall, they cried. This is no parley. You have nothing to say. I still have this to say, said Aragorn. No enemy has yet taken the Hornburg. Depart or not one of you will be spared. Not one will be left alive to take tidings back to the north. You do not know your peril. And so great a power and royalty was revealed in Aragorn as he stood there above the ruined gates before the host of his enemies that many of the wild men paused and looked back over their shoulders to the valley and some looked doubtfully at the sky. But the orcs laughed with loud voices and a hell of darts and arrows whistled over the wall as Aragorn leapt down. There was a warm blast of fire. The archway of the gate above which he had stood a moment before crumbled and crashed in smoke and dust. The barricade was scattered as if by a thunderbolt. Aragorn ran to the king's tower, but even as the gate fell, the orcs about it yelled, preparing to charge. A murmur arose behind them, like a wind in the distance, and it grew to a clamor of many voices crying strange news in the dawn. The orcs upon the rock, hearing the rumor of dismay, wavered and looked back, and then sudden and terrible from the tower above, the sound of the great horn of Helm rang out. And all that heard that sound trembled. Many of the orcs cast themselves on their faces and covered their ears with their claws. Back from the deep the echoes came, blast upon blast, as if on every cliff a mighty herald stood. But on the walls men looked up, listening with wonder, for the echoes did not die. Ever the horn blast wound among the hills. Nearer now and louder they answered one to another, bowing, fierce and free. Helm, Helm, the rider shouted, Helm is arisen and comes to war. Helm for Theoden king. And with that shout the king came. His horse was white as snow, his hair was golden, and his shield and spear was long. At his right hand was Aragorn, Lendil's heir. Behind him rode the lords of the house of Errol the Young. Light sprang in the sky. Night departed. Forth, Aerolingus, with a cry and a shout, the noise they charged, down from the gates they roared over the causeway they swept, and drove through the host of Isengard as a wind among grass. Behind them, from the deep, came the stern cries of men issuing from the caves, driving forth the enemy. Out poured all the men that were left upon the rock, and ever the sound of blowing horns echoed in the hills. On they rode, king and companions, captains and champions, fell or fled before them. Neither orc nor man withstood them. Their backs were to the swords and spears of the riders, and their faces to the valleys. They cried and wailed, for fear and great wonder had come upon them with the rising of the day. (coughs) 
So King Theoden run from Helm's Deep, clove the path to the Great Dyke. The companies halted. Light grew bright about them. Shafts of the sun flared above the eastern hills, glimmered on their spears, but they sat silent. On their horses they gazed down in the deepening coom. The land had changed. Where before the Greendale had lain, its grassy slopes lapped the ever-mounting hills. There now a forest loomed. Great trees, bare and silent, stood rank on rank, tangled bough and hoardy head, their twisted roots buried in the long green grass. Darkness was under them. Between the dike and the eaves of the nameless wood, only two open furrows lay. There now covered... There now cowered the proud host of Sauron in terror of the king and in terror of the trees. They streamed down from Helm's Gate until all about the dike was empty of them. But below, they were packed like swarming flies. Vainly, they crawled and clambered about the walls of the coom, seeking to escape. Upon the east, too sheer and stony, was the valley side. Upon left from west, their final doom approached. Then suddenly, upon a ridge, appeared a rider clad in white, shining in the rising sun. Over the low hills and the horns were surrounding. Behind him, hastening over the downward long slopes with a thousand men on foot, their swords were in their hands. Amid them strode a man tall and strong. His shield was red, and he came to the valley's brink. He set his lips to a great black horn and blew a ringing blast. Erkenbrand, the rider shouted. Erkenbrand! Behold the white rider, cried Aragorn. Gandalf has come again. Mithrandir, Mithrandir, said Legolas. This is wizardry indeed. Come, I will look on this forest before the spell changes. The host of Isengard roared, swaying this way and that, turning from fear to fear. Again the horn sounded from the tower. Down through the breach of the dike charged the king's company, and down from the hills leapt Erkenbrand, lord of the Westfold. Down leapt Shadowfax, like a deer that runs sure-footed in the mountains. The white rider was among them, and the terror of his coming filled the enemy with madness. The wild men fell on their faces before them. The orcs reeled and screamed and cast aside both sword and spear. Like a black smoke driven by a mounting wind, they fled. Wailing, they passed under the waiting shadow of the trees. And from that shadow, none ever came again. Badass, man. That was the chapter uh, of Helm's Deep. <laughs> so that was great. <laughs> uh, there was a lot going on there. It was a lot of reading, but uh, it, was, it was an important chapter. And it was just fun to read how it sounds on paper versus how we got to see it on screen. And we'll, like I said, we'll mention more about it when the differences comes around. But... Yeah, I don't know. Do you have any sort of takeaways from the chapter outside of what I just read? Like, what did you think of the chapter? What did you think about uh, Helm's Deep like in, in the novel now that you've got to read it again? Give me your thoughts on it. Yeah, I thought it was... Uh, the one thing I wish that was in there, I kind of wish the elves were brought into play, like in the movie a little bit, because I thought that was cool. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. In the movie, it was like... Uh, Hildor, or whatever his name was, that wanted to blind Gimli in the book is who actually dies in the film, I think, right? Is the elf that dies, I'm pretty sure. Remember the one in the novel that wanted to blind Gimli? I can't remember his name, because I'm the worst with names. But I think it's him in the film that dies, the one that says, we could have shot you in the dark, because <laughs> you're breathing so loud. But So I kind of wish, you know, I'm an elf guy, <laughs> so I kind of like wish the elves were brought in a little bit, but no, it was an excellent chapter, man. It was one of those, you kind of have to read that because like every second there's an important detail and an action-packed moment that's there. Uh, I did like how, you know, Gimli and Legolas were keeping score because there were so many people that, so many orcs coming after them. So like everyone that they killed, they were chopping down moments. Got to give it to Gimli here, man. Stand correctly. Stand 
corrected, corrected, that's a new word, I'm going to put in my vocabulary, stand corrected, uh, he did hold his own in this battle, man, he did pretty well, so, uh, you know, I talked a lot of shit about him in the fellowship, but he did pretty well here, so I, I gotta give him props, uh, and you'll find out in this next chapter, you know, he even, you know, uh, you know, you know, beat Legolas, <laughs> in a way, so, uh, yeah, I, I was impressed, I thought it was a great chapter, um, very interesting how early on it happens here in the book. So, which we'll get into the differences later uh, in things when we talk about differences in the novel. But uh, it was kind of cool because you, uh, it, it's kind of like you're just kind of thrown into it. Like it just kind of happens like out of nowhere after they're tracking down uh, uh, Mary and Pippin and, and you find out, you know, Gandalf's like story right before so it kind of just like happened so it was really cool i was impressed what about you i thought the chapter was pretty great myself like it's definitely one of the more exciting ones of the series that we read so far i know we've kind of hit home about this a few times about how some of the chapters just are so overwhelming in detail that it sometimes it can be a tough read this wasn't one of those chapters like this is one of the ones that like, it's exciting it talked a little bit about like battle tactics you could almost visually see it in your head and like when it compared like how many uh of the enemy of like the orcs army was like ears of corn like just flowing off a sea of black and like i don't know it just was really cool to kind of get a visual of how outnumbered and outmatched they were and also equally as impressive is how they were able to hold the wall as as well as they could with, with being outnumbered to that extent and you know obviously we're going to talk more about the film later on but i think that that reading it on paper there was a little bit of differences about who came to aid then talking about the tree thing and that's going to come up here in a future chapter like that we're going to read here today i don't want to give it too much away on that end but point being is that this is one of the more exciting chapters that we've come across so far in the entire series that we've read up to this point. Uh, you know, we got, we got, we're gonna figure out who made it, who didn't make it out of the Battle of Helm's Deep. There was like, I think two important people uh, that were at least important to Rohan that, you know, didn't make it. One of our guys suffered a wound. We'll talk about that too when that comes up. But uh, overall, like, this has probably been my favorite chapter so far. And you know, I, I don't. I'm like, between myself and Chase here, guys. Like, I'm the, I'm the one that doesn't terribly like to read too much directly from the book. And when I read this, I was like, ah, I'm super excited. I'm going to take this. Like, I'm going to do all the, the pages on it. I'm just going to do it. Uh, and you know, I'm happy I was able to kind of get through it and and really discuss it in detail because it it really brought it to life. And this is one of the few times that I wouldn't say few times, but this is one of the times that J.R.R. Tolkien's attention to detail really uh, embellished and helped to like draw you into what you were seeing in your mind when you're picturing this big battle and you know talking about how they were coming at like the gates here and then they're going over the ramparts there with like, the ladders and then busting through the wall with like this the blasting fire and you know where Aragorn and and Aylmer would jump out there and how they almost got like taken out because they were stumbling and tired because they're fighting all night it started at midnight and the battle like went into dawn like you know that's like six hours of straight fighting like, like at midnight when you're already like not getting any sleep from the day march that you took to get there like it's just so much like it empowered in it that yeah I mean to my to this point it, it was my favorite chapter and I thought it was there was a lot of great detail and then Gandalf coming in at the end uh, yeah, this, on the white horse you know but and he brought some other people not exactly what we saw on film but he brought 
uh, Erkenbrand and, and the rest of the Westfold army that was kind of scattered after they got waylaid by the orcs on the way there, uh, that they were trying to go, like, the, the Theoden's forces were going to, like, reinforce and like, fight them in the open field, and they realized, shit, we're really outnumbered. We got we to gotta, we gotta make a stand, you know, where we're, we're strong. And, you know, that was awesome that Gandalf was able to muster up, like, enough people and find Erkenbrand and bring them back all together and just come at them from the ass end. And they were, they were caught between, like, a hammer and an anvil, the, the orcs where the enemies were. And so... Uh, they they survived the siege. The the good guys prevailed, and you know the battle of Helm's Deep is over, and and still to this day Helm's Deep has not fallen. So uh, that I think that was great, and so I kind of want to jump in to the next chapter. You know, the next chapter we have here is the road to Isengard, and there's a couple of a few things that I thought they were worth mentioning in this chapter as well too. So going through. Throw to Isengard. The first thing I wanted to say is uh, suck at Chase because we find out that Gimli beats Legolas in the kill count, 42 to 41. So <laughs> then the one to start out there. What do you think about that, Chase? You think talking about the dwarf back in the day? I remember a couple episodes ago we we're in Fellowship of the Ring talking about how he was useless and he beat your boy in a kill count and all he had was a, it was his axe and, and Legolas had his bow. So talk to me a little bit about how you feel now. <laughs> Hey, man, I mean, that's all part of this business is taking criticism. <laughs> I'll be the first to admit I'm wrong, and uh, he proved me wrong, man. It made me sad. I thought my boy was going to step up to the plate. He let me down. There's nothing I can do. <laughs> but uh, I got to give him props, man. He held his own. I, I thought, you know, I thought his... His ass was going to be thrown off the gates of Helm's Deep and fall to his doom, just like Gandalf fell off the bridge of Khazad-dûm. <laughs> but it didn't happen, even if, uh, just like we'll get into the differences later, like Legolas says, would you like me to get you a box? He didn't need the box in this in this chapter, and I'll be the first to admit I was wrong, man. That sucks. Awesome. I uh, just <laughs> love giving Chase a hard time. But you know, to continue on there in, in this chapter, I got pretty much Gandalf takes Theoden, Aragorn, Gimli, Legolas, and a small group of Theoden's men to Isengard to parlay with Saruman. Uh, we find out that every single orc was killed in the Battle of Helm's Deep. There's no more orcs remaining there. Uh, but there are a few remaining men of Dunlin. They fought alongside the orcs. They asked for mercy. And they were made to swear vows that they're never going to join the enemies of men again. And it was it's kind of cool because we kind of see that Saruman poison their minds against them, thinking that they were they were going to be savages and they were going to be tortured and brutally killed. And when they asked for mercy, that like yeah okay like we'll give you mercy, but you're making this vow that you're never like going against like enemies of men again, and you're going to help like you know take care of all this stuff that you helped destroy. Like you're going to you know dig the the burial grounds. You're going to do all these things. They like, put them to work basically. Like yeah like we're going to earn your mercy that we gave you. So thought that was kind of cool it was like a win-win situation for both they get to keep their lives but they get some man like you know they get some manpower on it thought that was pretty interesting but yeah to talk a little bit about what i was mentioning when a couple important people died in helm's deep we find that uh hamad the captain of the king's guard died in the battle of helm's deep he was uh he was a good one we didn't get to know too much about him but they didn't that was Thaden's guy uh you know the captain of the king's guard you guys remember the king's guard from game of thrones like that's an important position uh and you know Thaden's guy is gone now now, I, I really kind of thought that the chapter spent a long time talking about the former grandeur of Isengard. This is one of the things, again, where, like, J.R.O. Tolkien goes off on his great detail about all of Isengard and how, like, the, the water is poured into it and the beautiful green grass and, like, <laughs> like how the stone pillars. Like, he just he kind of went on, like, a whole tangent of explaining how beautiful Isengard was. And I get why, because of how Isengard appears now once, you know, Saruman's treachery took hold and he ended up 
doing what he did and you know raising the army of orcs and mixing them with goblins and men and you know why isengard looks like a shithole now i get why we we talk about how beautiful isengard was um but yeah it didn't make for exciting reading through the chapter on that end uh i did see here like uh orthonk was a citadel of saruman like the tower like if you guys look on the cover of the book here and i'll try to put this on social media but the tower on the cover there's a white tower and then there's a black tower and the white tower obviously with the white hand of saruman that was supposed to be like the white tower but we actually learn here on page 174 and i'll read it directly it's like this last paragraph on page 174 uh, says to the center all roads ran between their chains there stood a tower of marvelous shape it was fashioned by the builders of old who smoothed the ring of isengard yet it seemed a thing not made by the craft of men but riven from the bones of the earth and the ancient torment of the hills a peak and an isle rock it was black and gleaming hard four many piers of many-sided stones were welded into one Near the summit, they opened into gaping horns and pinnacle sharpest point of spears and keen edges knives. And between them, there was a narrow space, and there upon the floor of polished stone was written strange signs. A man might stand 500 feet above the plain, and this was Orthonk, the citadel of Saruman, the name of which had been, by design or by chance, a twofold meaning, for in the elfish speech, Orthonk signifies Mount Fang, but in the language of the mark of old, it means the cunning mind. So the tower is actually black. <laughs> like so it's weird like i don't know unless he changed it black maybe they colored it black from like the original white tower there but I, that's something i definitely noticed and i was very curious on it it's basically said that he fashioned it directly after uh mordor and you know to kind of give my point on there and like my evidence is on page 175 at the top here's the first paragraph it says a strong place and wonderful was isengard and long had it been beautiful and there great lords had dwelt, the wardens of Gondor upon the west, and wise men that watched the stars. But Saruman had slowly shaped it to his shifting purposes and made it better, as he thought, being deceived. For all those arts and subtle devices for which he forsook his former wisdom, and which finally he imagined were his own, came but from Mordor. So that he was made was not only a little copy, a child's model, or a slave's flattery of the vast fortress armory prison furnace of great power, Baradur, the Dark Tower, which suffered no rival, and laughed at flattery, biding its time to secure its pride and immeasurable strength. So basically what that just meant is like this little Orthong Tower is like there's nothing compared to the Tower of Baradur where like the all seeing eye resides. Like it's, it's just a, like a child's flattery. So yeah, it was interesting. You know, this I, it kind of almost contradicts it here unless the tower was at one point white. And I remember that dream where they had Gandalf at the white tower at the top, you know, that Frodo had way back in the beginning of the Fellowship when I was like, hey, does Frodo have some premonitions, if you guys remember that? So either he changed it to a, being a black tower or there's something interesting going on there. Uh, definitely wanted to bring that, that up, though. From there... Uh, you know, Merry and Pippin, we find they, they, they got Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, and Gandalf. They find Merry and Pippin chilling. They're eating and they're smoking. And they make the, when, when they all make their way into Isengard, they get, we finally get that reunion between them. Like, so they, outside of, obviously, Frodo and Sam and Boromir, because Boromir's gone, dead, and like, Frodo and Sam had gone in their own way, like, the Fellowship's kind of back together, you know? Like, like outside of that, they're, they're all back. And I thought it was kind of cool. And it happened after two major things. Like, after the Ents destroyed Isengard, and after the, the trio, like Liskinley, Aragorn, and then Gandalf comes back and helps out at Helm's Deep. They survive the Battle of Helm's Deep. Merry and Pippin help take out Isengard, and they all meet, like, there after a big conflict. And I thought that was kind of cool, a little full circle. So we got some of the party back together, man. Um, from there, 
One more thing that I thought was important is just, you know, and this is, I just mentioned it really, but the Ents have overtaken Isengard and it's no longer a threat to Middle-earth. Like, you know, they, they, all of their armies are gone. Like, the armies of Isengard were destroyed in the Battle of Helm's Deep. The Ents took out Isengard itself and, like, flooded the place. So, like, nothing there, you ain't getting in and out. So, Isengard is now, the power of Isengard's done and over with. Now, we're going to learn that Saruman still has some power, and we're going to talk about that in the coming chapter, and like, how cool that can kind of seem, and, you know, even, and, like, a, even a cornered wolf is still very dangerous, you know, but the actual power of Isengard itself and it being, like, a, a major player in the Battle of Middle-earth, it, it's, it's gone. It's not, it's no longer, like, its importance is insignificant at this point, so... Yeah, those are all the, the takeaways I had for the chapter, The Road to Isengard. Uh, what about you, man? What are the takeaways that you have? Yeah, man. No, I think you nailed it. I think, uh, I just think it's really cool because uh, just think of the fact, you know, they knew based on what Gandalf was telling them, of course, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas, that, you know, Merry and Pippin were with the Ents. But they weren't sure, you know, what they were actually doing. For all they know, they were still trapped in the forest with Brigalad or whatever they were doing. So it's just really cool to see these full circle moments where everything was coming to a cause that they were both working towards. And it's it's great that uh, even on the other side, which we'll get into this, you know, next week, you know, you still have Frodo and Sam working towards their own cause, which we saw them separate towards at the end of the fellowship there so no it's just great stuff and classic Mary and Pippin style kind of like uh the Fred and George Weasley man <laughs> eating all the foods smoking cracking jokes it was great stuff man and I'll let you take it away for chapter nine cool yeah to get into that next chapter it's called Floatsum and Jetsum I actually only have a very very few takeaways from this uh this this whole chapter here, uh, Merry and Pippin, they gr- actually grew in height due to drinking the water of the Ents. And that was pretty cool. It was really interesting mm-hmm. to kind of get that in there because hobbits are pretty small. And we've talked about like, their heights and where they range in there. And they were, uh, they were noticeably taller to the trio that hasn't seen them in nine days. Isn't that crazy? I think that was another thing, too, that I took away from this whole thing. Uh, and I'll, I'll get there in just a second. But, you know, I, I thought that it was really important to notate. Like, they're enjoying this rare moment of peace. Like, everybody, like, that this whole thing has been nonstop turmoil since Frodo left the Shire. And, like, this is the very, one of the very rare moments where everyone's kind of at peace. Like, there's, they're, they're all the reunion of friends. We got Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Merry, and Pippin all chilling together. They left the, the you know, the important conversations to Gandalf. Hey, Gandalf, you go handle that with Theoden and, and uh, Treebeard and figure out what the hell you want to do. We're just going to chill with our friends after all this. You know, we, that was a whole thing. We, we crossed uh, all these miles and leagues and valleys and all these crazy things to try to save these guys from the orcs. And, you know, we, we kind of failed and then we got taken into a different area once you've told us they were safe. And now we're all together. Like, like we're just going to sit here and relax. We're going to enjoy each other's company. We're going to give each other stories of, you know, what what's happened on uh, each of our sides before or since we've last parted. But yeah, uh, that that leads me to that next point that I was going to make is we learned that it was only nine days from when Pippin and Mary were taken captive. Time in this novel is so strange because it was what not, was it a little over twelve years from when Gandalf went from Bilbo's birthday to going back to Frodo. Remember in the very beginning in right. Fellowship of the Ring? It was something like that crazy where, you know, it didn't seem like that long in the film. And, like, you know, now we, we had this whole, this whole body of work that we've just read, and we find out that was only nine days. <laughs> like, what? That's crazy. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. But, yeah, you know, Mary and Pippin give the trio a recap of the events since being kidnapped by the orcs. And 
uh, we learned that the, the, the shade of the trees that went to Helm's Deep, they're actually called uh, Hjorns, and they're a type of ent that are not like fully developed. Like they're more tree than they are like uh, animated or like sentient, but they are still very dangerous, and they're the ones that have the really big issues with the orcs, and they actually went with Gandalf and, and Urkenban and the men of the Westfold to Helm's Deep, and that's where the forest came from out of nowhere and just destroyed all the orcs at Helm's Deep. So we learned that they're the ones that helped there. And the very last thing in this, uh, the, this chapter that I thought was any sort of importance was just the last page of 198 in my book. Uh, I'm just going to read this here. It says, All except one thing, said Aragorn, leaf from the south farthing in Isengard. The more I consider it, the more curious I find it. I have never been in Isengard, but I have journeyed in this land, and I know well the empty countries that lie between Rohan and the Shire. Neither goods nor folk have passed that way for many a long year. Not openly. And Saruman had secret dealings with someone in the Shire, I guess. Wormtongue may be found in other houses than King Theoden's. Was there a date on the barrels? And this is talking about the barrels of the, the pipe smoke that they had. Yes, said Pippin. It was the 1417 crop. That is last year's. No, the year before, of course. It's a good year. It was a good year. Oh, well. Whatever evil was afoot is over now, I hope. Or else it is beyond our reach at the present, said Aragorn. Yet I think I shall mention it to Gandalf, small matter though it may seem, among his great affairs. I wonder what he's doing, said Mary. The afternoon is getting on. Let us go and look around. You can enter Isengard now at any race, Strider, if you want to, but it's not a very cheerful sight. So why I wanted to read that is, like, there is some sort of, like, I don't know, I would say wheels turning in Aragorn's mind about what the like the import of the weed from the Shire to Isengard, how it got there, and like, is there a spy in the Shire? Is it something worth notating? Like, like, is there something else going on? And so, I don't know if that was a foreshadow. I'm not even sure if this ever comes back into play, but I definitely want to notate this. So, if we do end up reading part that comes back to this later on, I'm like, oh shoot, see, I'm glad that we pointed that out because you know here we found something you know worth mentioning. So, cool. That was what I had for that that uh, chapter, floats in the jetsam. What uh, takeaways did you have for the chapter? Yeah, just a, a couple more, not much. Is, I mean, kind of one big thing. I thought this was a really cool scene, the way it was described. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien. Like, he takes an entire five pages to describe <laughs> a scene. But basically all that happens in this scene is Saruman, you know, he's at that tower. He's still actually there after the Ents had flooded the place. And Gandalf was demanding him to come down. And when he came down, he fled and, and like, panicked and fled. And then uh, Wormtongue, uh, just like you mentioned, uh, one thing that he did was he, like, a reason this is called Float Sam Jet Sam is because he floated down the river <laughs> like a piece of wood and just, like, floated off. But a point I wanted to make up, I think it's really interesting to think, not to bring up other franchises here, but I am on this one, because I think it's interesting the comparison, wondering if, J.K. Rowling got ideas from of worm tail from worm tongue here because it kind of you can see their similarities a little bit like worm tongue you know he's secretly working for Saruman he was trying to kind of influence Theoden in a way whereas like you know worm tail uh, Peter Pettigrew <laughs> like not exactly the best uh, best person 
you know, he had that whole scene where, like, Sirius Black was, like, blamed, and he, like, fled the scene as, like, a hamster for, like, or a rat for, like, the longest time. It was Scabbers. So it's just interesting to see the similarities there. What do you think? Do you think she might have pulled some ideas kind of from this book? I think she's pulled a lot of ideas over the period of time from Lord of the Rings, and I don't want to take too much about it because that might be something that I bring up later on in this uh, episode that we do today, not to, not to you know, precursor anything, but uh, you might hear us talk about this in just a little bit <laughs> in a different type of format, so uh, I'll just kind of keep myself quiet there. There you go, man, and uh, I'll shoot it back to you, let you take away chapter 10. Sounds like a plan. So going to chapter 10, The Voice of Saruman, uh, there's a few good takeaways that I had in here. Uh, there's a few different like passages I want to read that I think have levels of importance. But the first thing I'm going to talk about is just the group is going to confront Saruman, and Gandalf warns them of the danger Saruman still has, especially with using his voice. And that, you know that's the, t- the title of the chapter is The Voice of Saruman. So... I'm going to go ahead and read the fourth paragraph on page 207 through all of the page 208 in my book here. So where that starts off in, it says, Will I come down, he mocked. Does an unarmed man come down to speak with robbers out of doors? I can hear you well enough here. I am no fool, and I do not trust you, Gandalf. They do not stand openly on my stairs, but I know where the wild wood demons are looking at your command. The treacherous are ever distrustful, answered Gandalf wearily, but you need not fear for your skin. I do not wish to kill you or hurt you, as you would know, if you really understood me, and I have the power to protect you. I am giving you a last chance. You can leave Orthanc, free, if you choose. That sounds very well, sneered Saruman, very much in the manner of Gandalf the Grey, so condescending and so very kind. I do not doubt that you would find Orthanc commodious, and my departure convenient, but why should I wish to leave? And what do you mean by free? There are conditions, I presume. Reasons for leaving you can see from your windows, answered Gandalf. Others will occur to your thought. Your servants are destroyed and scattered. Your neighbors you have made your enemies. You have cheated your new master, or tried to do so. When his eye turns hither, it will be red from the eye of wrath. When I say free, I mean free free from bond, of chain, or command, to go where you will, even to Mordor, Saruman, if you desire. But you will first surrender to me the key of Orthanc and your staff. They shall be pledges of your conduct to be returned later if you merit them. And Saruman's face grew livid, twisted with rage, and a red light was kindled in his eyes. He laughed wildly. Later, he cried, and his voice rose to a scream. Later, yes, when you also have the keys of Baradur itself, I suppose, and the crown of seven kings, and the rods of the five wizards, you have purchased yourself a pair of boots many sizes larger than those you wear now. A modest plan, hardly one in which my help is needed. I have other things to do. Do not be a fool. If you wish to treat with me... While you have a chance, go away and come back when you are sober. Leave behind these cutthroats and small ragtag that dangle at your tail. Good day. He turned and left the balcony. Come back, Saruman, said Gandalf in a commanding voice. And to the amazement of the others, Saruman turned again as if dragged against his will. He came slowly back to the iron rail leaning on it, breathing hard. His face was lined and shrunken. His hand clutched his heavy black staff like a claw. I did not give you leave to go said Gandalf sternly. I have not finished. You have become a fool, Saruman, and yet pitiable. 
you might still have turned away from folly and evil and have been of service, but you choose to stay and gnaw the ends of your old plots. Stay then, but I warn you, you will not easily come out again, not unless the dark hands of the east stretch out to take you. Sodomani cried, and his voice grew in power and authority. Behold, I am not Gandalf the Grey whom you betrayed. I am Gandalf the White, who has returned from death. You have no color now, and I cast you from the order and from the council. He raised his hand and spoke slowly in a cold, clear voice. Saruman, your staff is broken. There was a crack, and the staff split asunder in Saruman's hand, and the head of it fell down at Gandalf's feet. Go, said Gandalf. With a cry, Saruman fell back and crawled away. At that moment, a heavy, shining thing came hurtling down from above. It glanced off the iron rail even as Saruman left it, passing close to Gandalf's head, and smote the stair on which it stood. The rail rang snapped, and the stair cracked and splintered in glittering sparks, but the ball was unharmed. It rolled down the steps, a globe of crystal, dark but glowing with a heart of fire, and as it bounded away towards the pool, Pippin ran after it and picked it up. And so that was one of the things I wanted to mention there. There was a couple like big takeaways just in that little section that I read. This specifically talking about the keys of Barodur, like Saruman's accusing Gandalf of wanting to have the power of Mordor. Like he wants the keys of Barodur, which is the tower of Sauron, and then he says he wants the the, the rods of the five wizards. And so like I'm kind of curious myself, you know, maybe do some like outside research about like who all owns like the five wizard staffs and like what could someone do if they had all five rods? And you know, I'm just kind of curious on that end. It's something that we don't hear too much about. Uh, and then also like another crazy part is, is this is where we see. The, the real power of Gandalf in a way that Saruman was obviously Gandalf's superior earlier on in the series and now Gandalf dragged his ass back just by like commanding him with his voice and then cracked his staff broke the head off it and told him to crawl away like he, they just had no use for him so it's just really amazing to see you know how the tables have turned here and Saruman going from once a great power in Middle Earth is now basically left it like as nothing he's not he's a shell of his former self so definitely thought that was important to notate the next thing I'm going to go ahead and, and read here is a third and fourth paragraph on page uh, 209. It says, uh, That may be so, said Gandalf. Small comfort will those who have in their companionships. They will gnaw one another with words, but the punishment is just. If Wormtongue ever comes out of Orthonk alive, it'll be more than he deserves. So, like, this talks about how Wormtongue and Saruman, they're not a good match for each other. You know, they're both use like the power of their, their tongues to poison other people's minds. And, you know, we kind of see it earlier in this in this chapter when Saruman almost gets the riders of Rohan to like be like, yeah, they didn't forgive him. Let's go ahead and you know be friends with Saruman again. And, you know, they took a lot from the like break out of that quick spell with the power of his voice. And, you know, Thaden's the one that was able to really break free from it. And, you know, Gandalf stayed telling during that time because I think Gandalf wanted to see like, hey, can you guys pass the test? I told you what might happen. I told you that his voice... You know, he still has power here. Let's see, you know, I think Gandalf wanted to take a step back and see, like, how strong maybe the men of Rohan were, but even more so, I think, like, how much powers have faltered inside of Saruman, like, how much powers he has lost. So, thought that was pretty cool there to, to talk about. Next thing I have in this chapter, you know, honestly, the, big, the biggest takeaways of everything is Saruman's lost basically all of his power. This ball that Pippin just grabbed and, like, that rolled into this, like, this is going to be a big piece in just a little bit as well. It's called the Palantir. That Palantir is now in Gandalf's possession. The Ents hold dominion over Isengard and will do everything to make sure that Saruman doesn't escape. 
Merry and Pippin are going to leave Treebeard. They're going to depart from his company. He was the one that kind of saved them from the forest, took them to Isengard. Like, Merry and Pippin really kind of rallied the Ents to get into this, like, state of fury to where they decide, hey, let's go, let's go, you know, make amends here in Isengard and show them, you know, the power of the trees once he pisses off. And so now, like, it's almost, like, sad. It's, like, an, not an end of an era because they weren't there too long, but, you know, they had a very deep connection for a short amount of time between the Ents and Merry and Pippin. And even Treebeard kind of mentions that he's going to miss them when they go. Uh, so I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, then on top of that, you know, they, they, they Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Merry and Pippin set off on a journey again, and it's like we got most of the party back together. And that's kind of my takeaways on this chapter, The Voice of Saruman. What other takeaways did you have? Yeah, man. No, I mean, you, you nailed it. I mean... Uh, the biggest takeaway I really had, you really touched on, but, you know, Gandalf asked Treebeard uh, when they were having that conversation to drown the area to block the outlet so Saruman is forced out. So we know he's going to have to leave that place eventually, but no, man, you did great on that chapter. Let's uh, dive into the last one for today. Real quick on that. So it was actually the opposite. It wasn't to force Saruman out. It was to force Saruman to stay in. They want to make sure oh, okay, they want to make sure Saruman mm-hmm. cannot escape Orthanc. So that's why they're flooding it all. So yeah. there's no little outlets that he can go into, no back doors, no tunnels. They want to flood it so that way he has nowhere to go but stay in that tower. Because Gandalf said it's very important that Saruman does not escape. So that's yeah, correction, that's, misspoke yeah. there. Yeah, but so he can't. Uh, like he was trying, like how I mentioned before, panicking and trying to flee, like you said. So he can't escape the group. Good call for sure. So the last chapter here, the Palantir, there's actually quite a bit of takeaways I had in, in this chapter. And I'll kind of start right off here on the last paragraph, about 214. It's like a quick foreshadow of like how Saruman and Sauron communicated. Like They didn't quite understand it. So the last paragraph here it says, and talking about like a victory, it says, Yes, we have won, but only the first victory. And that in itself increases our danger. There was some link between Isengard and Mordor, which I have not yet fathomed. How they exchange news, I am not sure, but they did so. The Eye of Barad-dûr will be looking impatiently towards the Wizard's Vale, I think, and towards Rohan. The less it sees, the better. So they still haven't figured out how like Orthanc and Barad-dûr were communicating to each other, Saruman and Sauron, how they were getting information back and forth. And we're going to figure out here very shortly exactly how they were getting that information back and forth. So uh, the next thing I have is like Pippin is starting to become very overly concerned with this Palantir and wanting to look at it like he couldn't even sleep like he touched it for like a couple seconds before Gandalf grabbed it from him and put it in a sheet of robe and like he has this big argument with Mary about how he deserves to take a look at it because he's the one that found it and like you know and all this and it, it, Mary doesn't seem as concerned as he should about it he's like ah oh, just go to sleep man like me I'm like man like you barely touch this thing why is it why is it having this level of effect and pull over you I don't understand but uh so what ends up happening is Pippin takes the Palantir from Gandalf while Gandalf is sleeping, and he kind of replaces it with like a, like a little rock or something. And I will say that, you know, to talk about the movie just a quick second, they did this part pretty well. It's kind of exactly how I envisioned it when I read the pages like on the book. But mm-hmm. um, anyways, uh, I'm going to tell you exactly what ends up happening from the third paragraph on page 218 uh, through a little piece of the break in the page on page 220 in my book. So third paragraph on uh, page 218 here. Pippin sat with his knees drawn up and the ball between them. He bent low over it, looking like a greedy child stooping over a bowl of food in a corner away from others. He drew his cloak aside and gazed at it. The air seemed still and tense about him. At first, the globe was dark, black as jet, with the moonlight gleaming on its surface. 
Then there came a faint glow and a stir in the heart of it, and it held his eyes so now that he could not look away. Soon all the inside seemed on fire. The ball was spinning, or the lights within were revolving, and suddenly the lights went out. He gave a gasp and struggled, but he remained bent, clasping the ball with both hands. Closer and closer he bent, and then he became rigid. His lips moved soundlessly for a while. Then with a strangled cry, he fell back and lay still. The cry was piercing. The guards leapt down from the banks, and all the camp was soon astir. "'So this is the thief,' said Gandalf. Hastily he cast his cloak over the globe where it lay. "'But you, Pippin, this is a grievous turn to things.' He knelt by Pippin's body. The hobbit was lying on his back, rigid, with unseeing eyes, staring up at the sky. "'The devilry! What mischief has he done to himself and to all of us?' The wizard's face was drawn and haggard. He took Pippin's hand and bent over his face, listening for his breath, and then he laid his hands on his brow. The hobbit shuddered, his eyes closed. He cried out and sat up, staring in bewilderment at all the faces around him, pale in the moonlight. "'It is not for you, Saruman,' he cried in a shrill and toneless voice, shrinking away from Gandalf. "'I will send for it at once. Do you understand? Say just that!' Then he struggled to get up and escape, but Gandalf held him gently and firmly. "'Peregrine took,' he said. "'Come back!' And the hobbit relaxed and fell back, clinging to the wizard's hand. "'Gandalf,' he cried. "'Gandalf, forgive me!' "'Forgive you?' said the wizard. "'Tell me first what you have done.' "'I... I took the ball and looked at it,' stammered Pippin, "'and I saw things that frightened me, and I wanted to go away, but I couldn't. "'And then he came and questioned me, and he looked at me, and... and that is all I remember.' "'That won't do,' said Gandalf sternly. "'What did you see, and what did you say?' "'Pippin shut his eyes and shivered, but said nothing. "'They all stared at him in silence, except Mary, who turned away. "'But Gandalf's face was still hard. "'Speak,' he said. In a low, hesitating voice, Pippin began again, and slowly his words grew clearer and stronger. I saw a dark sky and tall battlements, he said, and tiny stars. It seemed very far away and long ago, yet hard and clear. Then the stars went in and out, and they were cut off by things with wings, very big, I think. But in the glass, they looked like bats wheeling around the tower. I thought there were nine of them. One began to fly straight towards me, getting bigger and bigger, and it had a horrible... No, no, I can't say. I tried to get away because I thought it would fly out. But when it had covered all the globe, it disappeared, and then he came. He did not speak so that I could hear words. He just looked, and I understood. So you have come back. Why have you neglected to report for so long? I did not answer. He said, Who are you? I still did not answer, but it hurt me horribly, and he pressed me. So I said, A hobbit. Then suddenly he seemed to see me, and he laughed at me. It was cruel, like being stabbed with knives. I struggled, but he said, Wait a moment. We shall meet again soon. Tell Saruman that this dainty is not for him. I will send for it at once. Do you understand? Say just that. Then he gloated over me, and I felt I was falling to pieces. No, I can't say more. I don't remember anything else. Look at me, said Gandalf. Pippin looked straight into his eyes. The wizard held his gaze for a moment in silence, and his face grew gentler, and the shadow of a smile appeared. He laid his hand softly on Pippin's head. All right, he said. Say no more. You have taken no harm. There is no lie in your eyes, as I feared. But he did not speak long with you. A fool, but an honest fool you remain, Peregrine took. Wiser ones might have done worse in such a pass. But mark this. You have been saved, and all your friends too, mainly by good fortune, as it is called. You cannot count on it a second time. If he had questioned you then and there, almost certainly you would have told all that you know to the ruin of us all. But he was too eager. He did not want information only. He wanted you quickly, so he could deal with you in the dark tower, slowly. 
Don't shudder. If you will meddle in the affairs of wizards, you must be prepared to think of such things. But come, I forgive you. Be comforted. Things have not turned out as evilly as they might. He lifted Pippin gently and carried him back to his bed. Mary followed and sat down beside him. Lie there and rest if you can, Pippin, said Gandalf. Trust me, if you feel an itch in your palms again, tell me of it. Such things can be cured. But anyways, my dear hobbit, don't put a lump of rock under my elbow again. Now, I will leave you two together for a while. So that was like a little bit about the exchange that Pippin had with Sauron. And like Gandalf said, if Sauron was just a little bit more calculated and a little bit more patient, he could have got all the information he needed about Frodo, what their plans were, how they were going to Mordor, like like all the like the battles they have lined up, like you know what they their plans are in terms of Gandalf, Legolas, Aragorn, Gimli, the Rohirrim, Theoden. Like he could have gave up all the information. They've been fucked, <laughs> like because right now they're bank- <laughs> they really are banking on the fact that Sauron has not yet come to the realization that they're looking to destroy the Ring. Because now if he realizes that and finds that out, all he's got to do is just wait for the ring to come to him. He doesn't have to do a single thing, and they're fucked. So, uh, yeah, it ended up working out like better than it could have since he was a little too overzealous. Uh, but, yeah. And then what ends up happening here, the next the note that I have is Gandalf gives a palantir to Aragorn since Aragorn can claim it by right. And it doesn't have the same effect on Aragorn as it does with the others because he is Elendil's heir and it's like supposedly something that was created along in their bloodline or something along those lines, right? It says, uh, I'll, I'll read this part here. It says, Dangerous indeed, uh, but not to all, said Aragorn. There is one who may claim it by right, for this assuredly is the palantir of Orthon from the treasury of Elendil, set here by the kings of Gondor. Now my hour draws near. I will take it. And Gandalf looked at Aragorn, and then to the surprise of the others, he, lift, he lifted the covered stone and bowed as he presented it, and said, Receive it, Lord, in earnest of other things that shall be given back. But if I may counsel you in the use of your own, do not use it. Yet be wary. So Gandalf's like, Here, take it. Yeah. <laughs> like, and so <laughs> thought that was kind of cool. He trusts like, Aragorn that much, and that it, it is something that he can claim as his own through, I guess, blood right, in a way. Uh, Here's another thing, too, that was really interesting. Gandalf even mentions that it might have been a good thing that Pippin is the one to put his hands on the Palantir because Gandalf himself thought about probing the Palantir and thinks, you know, that Pippin's mistake was the least of all the potential harms. And to talk about that, it says, this is directly from Gandalf, that many times is seen, you know, it's like it's a strange powers have our enemies and strange weaknesses that they have, but it has long been said, oft evil will shall evil mar. And that many times it seems like Gandalf, but at this time we have been strangely fortunate. Maybe I have been saved by this hobbit from a grave blunder. I had considered whether or not to probe this stone myself to find its uses, and had I done so, I should have been revealed to him myself. I am not ready for such a trial, if indeed I shall ever be so. But even if I found the power to withdraw myself, it would be disastrous for him to see me. Yet the hour comes when secrecy will avail me no longer." So, like, he, he's basically said that, damn, maybe it wasn't such a bad thing after all, because I was going to do it, and if I did it and this whole thing happened, we could be in a world of trouble. But next thing I have here, just that Sauron unleashes the Nazgul and allows him to cross the river for the first time, that's going to be a big deal. <coughs> and then we kind of get a history lesson of the Palantirs. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the last paragraph on page 224, to the first sentence on page 226. And that's going to start off with saying, then it was not made. Pippin hesitated by the enemy? Talking about the Palantir. No, said Gandalf, nor by Saruman. It is beyond his art and beyond Sauron's too. 
The Palantiri came from beyond the Western Ness, from Eldamar. The Noldor made them. Fëanor himself, maybe, wrought them in days so long ago that the time cannot be measured in years. But there is nothing that Sauron cannot turn to evil uses. Alas for Saruman, it was his downfall, as I now perceive. Perilous to us all are the devices of an art deeper than we possess ourselves, yet he must bear the blame. Fool, to keep it secret for his own profit. No word did he ever speak of it to any of the council. We had not yet given thought to the fate of the Palantiri of Gondor and its ruinous wars. By men they were almost forgotten. In Gondor they were a secret known only to a few. In Arnor they were remembered only in a rhyme of lore among the Dunedain. What did the men of old use them for? asked Pippin, delighted and astonished at getting answers to so many questions and wondering how long it would last. To see far off and to converse in thought with one another, said Gandalf, and in that way they long guarded and united the realm of Gondor. They set up stones at Minas Arnor, and at Minas Ithil, and at Orthanc in the Ring of Isengard. The chief and master of these was under the Dome of Stars at Osgiliath, before its ruin. The three others were far away in the north. In the house of Elrond, it is told they were at Anuminas, and Amensul, and Elendil Stone was on the Tower Hills that looks towards Mithland in the Gulf of Loon, where the grey ships lie. Each palantir replied to each, but all those in Gondor were ever open to the view of Osgiliath. Now it appears that as the Rock of Orthanc has withstood the storms of time, so there the palantir of that tower has remained. But alone it could do nothing but see small images of things far off in days remote. Very useful, no doubt, that it was to Saruman, yet it seems that he was not content. Further and further abroad he gazed until he cast his gaze upon Barad-dûr, and then he was caught. Who knows where the lost stones of Arnor and Gondor now lie, buried or drowned deep, but one at least Sauron must have attained and mastered to his purposes. I guess it was the Ithil stone, for he took Minas Ithil long ago and turned it to an evil place, Minas Morgul it has become. Easy it is now to guess how quickly the roving eye of Saruman was trapped and held, and however since he has been persuaded from afar and daunted when persuasion would not serve. The, bitter, the biter bit, the hawk under the eagle's foot, the spider in a steel web. How long, I wonder, has he been constrained to come often to his glass for inspection and instruction, and the Orthonk stone so bent towards Barad-dûr that, if any save a will of adamant now looks into it, it will bear his mind and sight swiftly hither. And how it draws to itself, I have, have I not felt it? Even now my heart desires to test my will upon it, to see if I could not wrench it from him and turn it where I would, to look across a wide sea of water and of time to Tyrion the fair, and perceive the unmanageable hand and mind of Feanor at their work while both the white tree and the gold were in flower. And he sighed and fell silent. So I thought that was important because what that does is kind of give us an idea of exactly how Sauron trapped Saruman's mind and like kind of bent him to kind of become uh, a partner in crime, so to speak, or like his chief lackey in a way. Uh, you know, he had the Orthanc, or in Orthanc he had the Palantir, and he was looking in it, and he just got a little too, you know, curiosity killed the cat, they said, and uh, <laughs> so he got too close to the dark place, and they, he got his mind ensnared and trapped by Sauron, and since then it's just been downhill. You know, he had his like, you know, had his devices and his schemes to try to, you know, break free and become the main power in Middle Earth, but didn't work out for him, and now Saruman's just, you know, a broken shell of himself. So. Uh, next thing I have in this chapter is that, yeah, Saruman kind of played himself because Sauron sent that Nazgul as a messenger to Orthanc to gain tidings and bring back the hobbit that Sauron saw in the Palantir to Barad-dur. But what Sauron doesn't know is that the Palantir was actually taken from him by Gandalf and that company. So in his mind right now, like, like if I'm Sauron, what I'm thinking is basically that Sa uh, Saruman 
showed the Hobbit the Palantir so that way Sauron could see, hey, look what I got for you, Sauron. I, I actually did the job and I got the Hobbit. This is for you. And so when the, the Nazgul goes to collect the Hobbit, it's not going to be there because they, they don't actually have the, the Palantir. And so now what's going to happen in Sauron's mind is that Saruman's trying to double-cross him and not give him the Hobbit and now is ignoring the ball because he hasn't been in it when in, in reality, it's just because it's not with him. And like, Sauron, Sauron doesn't know that Isengard has fallen yet. Sauron doesn't know that you know, all of the armies that Saruman built were destroyed at Helm's Deep. So basically, Saruman really kind of played himself. Uh, yeah. So then this kind of closes out with Gandalf telling Pippin that they are headed to Minas Tirith before war surrounds Gondor. And that's, you know, kind of a full circle here with Boromir being from Minas Tirith. We're finally going to, you know, head there after hearing about it all over the time from Boromir from last book and then a little bit about it in this book as well. So, yeah, that's the last takeaway I had. You know, Gandalf and Pippin set out for Minas Tirith and they were going to go from there. And that's kind of like the break in the novel itself, too. Like, this is where it turns from, you know, book one of the two towers to book two of the two towers, or I should say, you know, book four, because they're going to do like the break in Fellowship of the Ring, book one, book two, book three, book four. So that's kind of how it breaks down in the novels themselves. But anyways, yeah, those are the takeaways I had of the last chapter that we're going to cover today. What about you, man? What are the takeaways that you had? Yeah, no, you nailed it. That's exactly what I had. I mean, the uh, really cool part that I had like uh, there to kind of like read what you nailed it, though, so there's no point in reading it, was like when they saw the winged Nazgul, like they saw like that big like black shadow when it came out and they were like, oh, the Nazgul, winged Nazgul. And I, I just think it's, um, you know, it's kind of like they like no matter how far they go, like they still have such a long road ahead of them but i like the way this first part and then second part is broken up which we'll get into the second part next week um i think it's interesting the way J.R.R. tolkien decided to write it compared to which we'll get into differences later on with the film um but i like how it kind of focuses is more on how kind of the fellowship like broke up and you're focusing on different perspectives such as like Legolas, Aragorn, and Gimli, and then Gandalf comes along. And then you also have Merry Pippin, and then the Ents. Versus now that we're going into part two, we're going to start focusing more on Frodo and Sam, which I think is really cool. And if you think, um, which, uh, if you go back to season one of our podcast, when we did Game of Thrones, we focused more a lot on the show because, of course, uh, George R. R. Martin, I don't know if he has writer's block or what's going on, but it's taken a long time for Wins of Winter. <laughs> but we did talk about the books a little bit. And in the books, uh, the way those are written, those are broken down off perspectives as well. So I, I think it's very interesting. I like the way they break it down with perspectives. And uh, I thought it was great the way the film has kind of taken all these different chapters and was able to piece them together in a way that was really cool to see on screen from an overall perspective. Uh, so that was just kind of my takeaways. I like the way it was written here with this first part. And uh, yeah, these chapters today really were like really action packed as compared to like last week. I was fighting the urge to stay awake on some of them, man. <laughs> so that was uh, just my takeaways. It was good stuff, brother. What about you? Yeah, I think that it's pretty crazy. We're already halfway through the two towers, the second book in, in the series. So, uh, you know, with all this is going fast and. You know, it's, it's, it's a great ride to be on, and it, it, it has its 
ups and it has its downs. There's a lot of positives. There's some things I wouldn't necessarily consider negative. It's just stuff that you have to push past to really appreciate the the like the genius that we do have like on paper, which is this franchise. You know, like this franchise doesn't exist without these novels. And as tough of as of a read as it can be at sometimes, like the the payoff when it gets to like the amazing parts is just it it makes it worth it. You know, so um, that's pretty much my takeaways up to this point here, and I'm sure it's probably going to continue going forward to think of the same exact way. Like, there's going to be parts where I'm like, "Oh, this is tough to get through." And there's other parts where I'm like, "Heck yeah, I can't put this down." <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, outside of that, man, like, let's uh, let's jump into our uh, our great debates that we'll that we'll tackle here today, and then we'll jump on out of here after that. Yeah, uh, I guess my big debate for today it's kind of an obvious one. What is would anything be different if Gandalf took the Plantier Palantir and used it first versus if Pippin did it because Pippin didn't give anything away. However, it was a very risky move with Pippin just deciding to be curious, just like he did in Fellowship of the Ring, and wouldn't stop looking down wells and shit. Like that's my problem. Like he can't, he can't take, he can't follow the rules because he's too curious. Like he just kind of goes off and does his own thing, which really puts the group at big risk. So luckily, not a whole lot happened here that was very risky, but it could have ended up very bad. Do you think Gandalf secretly had a plan to use the Palantir versus? Do you think it changed at all? when Pippin went ahead and used it and he's like, well, shit, now we got to go to Minas Tirith now. Do you think they would have gone to Minas Tirith right away or probably found a way to get there later on and made different stops along the way? That's a good question. I'm going to try to answer it in the, the orders because like, there's, a, there's a couple different questions in there. And like the first one is, like, do I think anything would have been different if Gandalf was the one to look into the Palantir first. And, yeah, and I think the book itself kind of mentioned that and how it would basically it would kind of blow up the, the, the sense of surprise. Uh, number one, we, he, like Gandalf already had mentioned he's the second most powerful being in Middle-earth outside of Sauron. He still thinks that like the black is stronger right now. And he mentioned that when we talked about this last week when he came back to Legolas, Aragorn, and Gimli in the forest. Uh, he already had mentioned basically that he doesn't think he's he's quite strong enough to handle like Sauron one on one, and and that's kind of what you would have to do. He would kind of put himself in the same position that Saruman did, and uh, you know go in with like, looking at. But remember, he didn't know how uh, Saruman and Saruman created like were communicating, so he didn't really know what this Palantir was was used for. He was gonna like probe it and try to figure it out. So he could have been easily caught off guard, and just like Pippin was, and then you know he's got to have this like power struggle, and it's gonna be a lot different between like. Uh, Pippin and Sauron versus Gandalf and Sauron just simply because Sauron's like he didn't take Pippin seriously right Pippin's like this small hobbit and he thinks that like Sauron kind of did it as like a like a thing like here look what I got for you master this is the hobbit that we were talking about like that has something that you need right and so like from there Sauron was very like chill it wasn't like no urgency just other than sending the Nazgul to retrieve that hobbit right so if he looks into that and sees Gandalf all of a sudden He's like he's definitely not going to be chill and relaxed. It's going to be like like a, a big power struggle, and we're going to get like a like an intense 
you know, like power of wills between these two. And we're going to really see like, what, what Gandalf the White's all about. So it definitely would change stuff. And at the very, at the very least, like, it would put Sauron on more of a high alert. And they wouldn't be as lulled into this sense of security that he is right now where he thinks he's got this all in a bag. You know, he's not even really, not saying he's not trying, but he, he's being very patient in terms of taking his time, letting his armies go out and do what they need to do. Like, he, he thinks he's, he's, he thinks he's got everyone on, under checkmate right now in chess. Like, he's, in his mind, there's nothing that, that Middle-earth can do to stop him. And now if Gandalf's back... And he needs to, and he tries to glean all this information from Gandalf's mind, and Gandalf happens to be strong to just pull away and get out of there. Well, now they know, they know that the pal- that, like the benefits of it aren't don't change from what Pippin found out to what Gandalf would find out. It's just hey, this is what they used to communicate. So like, there's mm-hmm. no benefit of him doing it versus Pippin doing it. It would only be bad. <laughs> so yeah, I think a lot right. of th- I think a lot of things would change, and you know, all of a sudden, let's say Sauron was stronger than Gandalf, like Gandalf believes. Sauron's so gonna do everything to get all the information out of Gandalf's head, like immediately, like, yo, like you were, you were dead. Like all these reports came back to me. Like I'm gonna get everything I can out of you. I got you here, and then like let's say Gandalf gives up all the information. Now we're really screwed because he's not gonna go as easy on Gandalf as he is. He's gonna go on this little hobbit that looks like a child. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, I definitely <laughs> think to answer that part of it, it does change things for the worse. Now the second part of this, do do I think the plan changed? In terms of, were they always just going to go to Minas Tirith, or were they going to do something different? And they just decided now, because of all this, they needed to go to Minas Tirith. Yeah, I definitely think the plans changed. I think eventually they were going to get to Minas Tirith. But I think that the Gandalf ideally had some other business that he wanted to handle in like the in the um, Rohan realm first, and then kind of take it over to Minas Tirith. But then he just realized, hey, like it's no longer a priority now that the, especially now that the Nazgul has crossed the river. And like they, they, they right. he gave him full like basically Sauron gave him full leave. All right, I'm unleashing like my real guys here, like my my meg lieutenants. Kind of was like fuck, like war surrounding Gondor. We need to get there and we need to start preparing because we don't have time anymore. Every time, all the time we thought we had, we no longer have. Let's fucking go. And that's why he grabs it and then they rush off on shadow effects, like taking off like a bolt, like a dart, like an arrow dart through air, man. So those are like my two answers to that. I, I definitely think it would have changed things for the worse. If Gandalf looked into it, and I do think that the plans changed, and they decided they had to go to Minas Tirith because they needed to warn them and at least get them prepared for what's coming. So that's that's my thought and my takeaways on it. What are yours? Yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, for the, uh, I'll kind of answer the second part of that question actually first. Like, would they had gone to Minas Tirith first? No, I think just like you said, I think he had business he had to handle in Rohan. Um, first before they just took off to Minas Tirith it makes me wonder how much because Gandalf isn't weak either now of course I agree with you entirely that Sauron would have definitely applied a lot more pressure than he did to Pippin like (laughs) what power to let's be real like Gandalf compared to Pippin like there's not really any comparison there. Like, Pippin tells really good jokes, but <laughs> no, like, in a battle, that's, no. There's no comparison. Uh, but Gandalf is really powerful, so I wonder how much information he would be able to withhold there, which makes me wonder... It makes me wonder if it would have turned out better, though, because... 
I mean, in the end, I guess it I guess it wound up being the same, but it makes you kind of take a step back and wonder if Gandalf would have used that Palantir to kind of estimate and make an educated guess in a way on what Sauron's next move was. Whereas Pippin, it was almost like good cop versus bad cop. You know, you're being interrogated, but I'm just not going to give away information. So, but I agree with you 100%, but right before I switch it over to you, can you answer that question for me? Do you think Gandalf would have been able to hold his own a little bit better, uh, even though it wound up being the same, but tried to use Sauron's questions to estimate what his next move might have been, and Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, the Ents, you know, kind of the defense they're building with Rohan and all the riders and everything... They would have been able to build a better plan from Rohan to fight against Sar- Sauron in the future. Uh, I still think it would have turned out for the worse, and this is why this is why I answer this because right now their plan and why it's quote unquote working is because it it's all been focused on or like like reliant upon secrecy, right? I and as of right now, Sauron doesn't know that Gandalf is back in in the picture at all. And so he finds that out. He's going to take things a little bit more seriously. Like their, like their plan is like, hey, like he's relaxed and he doesn't know what's happening right now. And he thinks, like he's 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 so sure of the outcome. It hasn't even like there's no shred of doubt in his mind. And so because of that, he doesn't he doesn't have to take anything so seriously. But like I think that the minute he finds Gandalf's back, sees the color, he is now Gandalf the White and now the leader of the council, of the Great Council of all the wizards. Now, like, he realizes we're, like, this is a new ball game at the very least. Like, I'm going to be on a heightened sense of alert. I'm going to play things a little more smart now because I know that, you know, like, it's not as a sure thing as I thought it was, right? It's like in basketball when you have a 20-point lead, you start relaxing a little bit because you don't think the other team's going to be able to come back. And all of a sudden, they start, you know, you look at the scoreboard 10 minutes later and, like, shoot, we're, we're down two? Well, now I got to play hard. <laughs> now I got to play hard again. You know what I mean? So it's like, like I, I think he, like what would end up happening, is it would put Sauron on such high alert that he would play things a little bit smarter. He would attack faster. He would like make sure that there's, like that Gandalf's reappearance affected as little as possible to the giant outcome of everything. And whether you know that's what you, that goes by taking over Gondor sooner, like unleashing the Nazgul ahead of time and like att- attacking in certain areas, like. I just think that right now their plan lies in secrecy and that the fact that the, that Sauron thinks there's nothing that can contend with him eventually that he's going to destroy enough to where he's going to find this ring. He doesn't realize that the ring's coming to him. So even if Gandalf was able to, you know, somewhat like because of the questions, you know, kind of play like reverse interrogation and say, because well, number one, I don't think so, like, Gandalf's strong enough to take Sauron in, in this sort of battle mm-hmm. yet. And I don't know if he ever will be on a one-on-one side. I know that he was kind of curious to test himself. But I don't, I, I, in my own opinion, I don't think he is. But let's say he was, was strong enough to withhold like this information, was able to kind of stand toe-to-toe, if not, like, you know, win the battle, at least, like, you not completely lose it, uh, like, this, like, power struggle here. I still don't think that with any information that Sauron would, would give to Gandalf through the questions that Sauron would be asking him or interrogating him about, there's nothing really that he could do with that information, like, at the end of the day, the the armies are going to be the size of the armies. He's still going to have to try to convince Gondor to you know like listen to him, which they tend to be a little bit difficult, uh, you know. And Rohan just had a huge battle at Helm's Deep. They're not at full strength, so like 
no, I don't really think that it really would have changed anything. I don't think it would have put them in a better position to figure out where to defend and where. Just they don't have the numbers. They don't have the resources. <laughs> and I'll, I think that just generally speaking, it would just be all bad. And so the fact that it was Pippen that looked into it definitely was for the best. So that that that's my takeaway on it. Yeah, I agree with that. I I could get on board with that. Makes sense. What about you, man? What are your debates? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this just a little bit earlier when you were mentioning J.K. Rowling and what I think that she's taken from the Lord of the Rings um, franchises. What? Oh, what? I, I I can think of a few things I believe that J.K. Rowling has taken and adapted from this book series. What are some of the things that you believe that she has taken from? And I'll talk a little bit about the things I think she's taken from. And let's see, there might be even some more things later on uh, down the way too. But yeah, talk a little bit about like the things you think are like like renditions of it, right? Like they they you know are rooted from you know the Lord of the Rings. What do you think that she took into Harry Potter that she you know maybe had in the back of her mind when she read this series and was like, oh, I would love to kind of put my take and a little spin on you know this. What what are some of the things that you think? Yeah, I mean, there's just so many things I really noticed. I mean, even Game of Thrones has similarities, and we, I'm, I don't exactly know this, but I'm assuming both those authors have probably taken things away from this book series that came out much, much earlier. Um, of course, starting out before, I think there's a big similarity with Worm Tongue and Wormtail, who is Peter Pettigrew. I mean, even just the name alone kind of gives a little bit of a similarity, but the whole, you know, deal with Peter Pettigrew as Wormtail, remember uh, that whole situation that we talked about? You can go look on our earlier podcast episodes, but with Azkaban, when Sirius Black got sent there, um, you know, and he kind of escaped and Peter Pettigrew did as a rat <laughs> scabbers and Ron had him the whole time it's very similar with like worm tongue how he was almost trying to I don't want to say it wasn't exactly like the way as in the film which we'll talk about later in a few weeks here but he was very much trying to influence Theoden almost like how um worm tail I can't say he exactly influenced Voldemort it was a little bit more of Voldemort influencing him but he was very much kind of like his big helper there, like trying to help him out. And he was he was a snake <laughs> in a way. No offense to snakes. Grass snake is my Patronus. No offense. Slytherins are awesome, even though I'm a Gryffindor. But <laughs> that's a similarity there, even to the point of Occlumens. Now that we're talking about the Palantir here, think of that, you know. Severus Snape, my boy, man, that gets a lot of bad rap. I know you don't like him too much, but remember he kept telling Harry, he was like, learn to guard your mind. And and Dumbledore had all those lessons with Harry where he was talking about guarding your mind against Voldemort. And it's kind of the same thing here. Like we just talked about the Palantir and, and Pippin, who was almost being interrogated when he looked into it and Sauron was questioning him and how we've seen Sauron how he's been, you know, tried to get things out of Frodo. And it's kind of the same idea there. Um, even let's look into the rings, you know, the rings of power that you have. In a way, they're kind of like, if you look at the Nazgul, or if you look at, uh, yeah, I would really put an example as the Nazgul. 
uh, and how they wear the rings and how it kind of like corrupts their mind or whoever even is even being influenced by the ring, just like we saw Boromir and the Fellowship of the Ring and how it kind of it doesn't exactly turn you into the same kind of person. Look at Horcruxes. We mentioned this before. I, I Ron's awesome. <laughs> I we were talking about yeah he's made some mistakes, but he's not a bad guy. And when he was wearing the locket, it wasn't exactly he wasn't being the nicest person. <laughs> I would say. Uh, I mean, you know, you can even look at Gaunt's ring. It didn't like possess Dumbledore's mind or anything really, but. I mean, how it, like, corrupted his hand. I mean, it even takes a toll kind of on your body wearing the rings in a way. So, I mean, there's just a lot of very similarities there. And I'll even go as far as, like, Game of Thrones. You play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Uh, a lot of different things here, how you're seeing, you know, battles that are uh, taking place in, in Game of Thrones and um, a lot of even kind of politics involved in a way uh, you can kind of even see influences from the book and things that were taken in the dothraki language in high valyrian and low valyrian just like he has an entire appendix that comes from elvish so uh, even if it's not as much as like magic and elves and that sort of thing which in a way you actually can because <laughs> we can say the targaryens have their own and even though the show wasn't as as exactly accurate as the book but they even have the violet eyes and everything and you're kind of seeing you know some of the magic involved that kind of comes from wizards sort of the elves aren't as much like as much like wizards but we've even seen you know glorfindel you know he had all that kind of magic he was using to uh take down the ring wraiths so there's a lot of um similarities between the franchises we cover specifically answering your question on harry potter here and i'll even take it a further extent uh game of thrones where you can see how this book uh i'll even go as far to say it definitely laid some groundwork and foundation of what it appears to me that two major authors have taken ideas from this and i think even other fantasy authors have so what about you man definitely and i'll talk i think that'd be a good way to talk about when we finally finish the entire lord of the Rings series here in the next couple months to really talk about all the the fantasy fiction franchises that may have drawn uh inspiration at least in some aspects from uh these books but to talk specifically about jk rowling and, and the harry potter series like I really think that she drew a lot of comparisons, or like, had, like there was a lot of influence of his work in what she wrote. Uh, I think like the Ringwraiths, the Black Riders themselves, you can kind of see they're very similar to what her Dementors are. You know, like remember that like the the Black Kiss. They, that's what like mm -hmm. uh, they were talking about in back in um, the Prancing Pony, like like back in Bree, uh, when Mary ran down that thing and almost got the Black Kiss from the black rider and you know where there's the dementors kiss and they they kind of look similar with like the black cloaks like the hood over the head and you can't really see their face uh you know that 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 is you know big one there and the, the worm tongue worm tail uh comparison you, i think you nailed spot on i think that there's a lot of similarities between those characters uh the one i didn't know that you were actually going to bring up i thought like i thought i was going to bring it up first but you know you made a really good you know in, intuitive uh guess there i think that the Rings of power are very similar to like these Horcruxes, like like not necessarily like pieces of souls on it, 
but you know that there there are these items that are can corrupt the people that are in close proximity to them you know that's really close too and then Honestly, here's one. I'm surprised that you didn't mention this one. Like Gandalf and Dumbledore. Like the like one old yeah. <laughs> like one straight like like, like there's just like old guy that's kinda wise that's kinda deemed more powerful than everybody else, kinda calling the shots and playing like chess master and putting things into to play. I think that Dumbledore's character is a direct derivative of Gandalf. <laughs> like to be honest with you, like they're very, very similar. You know, they have an aura of power, they're very intelligent, they seem to be the leader, people look to them for guidance. Uh, you know, they have a, a sense of power that you think you don't want to mess with. Like you think like, as long as you have them on your side, you're good. Like that they are very much uh, alike, I think. Um, yeah. They I, both I, sacrificed themselves at one point. <laughs> like that's kind of a big one. Yeah. yeah. They hundred percent. And you know, other things too, just, um, the talking about like, and this is this is I know this is kind of a stretch, but like hobbits are kind of looked like as at, you look at hobbits similar to children in the you know, Harry Potter like these are like kids growing up and you know coming out of there and uh, you know coming of age type of deal and so and I, I almost like would think too Merry and Pippin and their relationship and how they're close is like you know they're like they're, they're the troublemakers and they're fun that you can almost you know, make the argument that Fred and George could have been influenced by Merry and Pippin and you know their antics and they're like like you know having the like the good old jokesters of the crowd so uh, yeah, like that's the definite possibility. I'm not saying that's that's 100, percent but I'm saying like there's a lot of arguments that can be made that there's many aspects of J.K. Rowling's works and Harry Potter that could have been derived straight from Lord of the Rings, or at least heavily influenced by it. So, yeah, I think I think we're all on the same page there. <laughs> yeah, man, no, it's it's great, and uh, uh, that's why I love these debates and, and conversations, and um, it, it's just great going through the franchises and and seeing so many similarities and seeing how you know, authors can take almost like ideas from other authors and even go into the thoughts of like, uh, you know, uh, Fluffy that's in uh, Sorcerer's Stone. There's even been talks like she took that from Greek mythology. And, um, you know, it, it's just great how in depth uh, these books go and how we still have such a great fantasy genre today because. Uh, I think a big influence of it has been this book that has laid the foundation uh, for authors to come that have taken these ideas to project it just so much farther in a way to where we have entire universes now, which I think in a way it was kind of like J.R.R. Tolkien's idea. It just, you know, this book was developed just so far early on. Uh, Almost like back then, yeah, you had like really... Um, great writers but it's almost like the literature wasn't as it was more serious in a way like the literature was back then and and so I think he played a major influential role for kind of what we have today and how the fantasy genre has grown but yeah with that I'll, I'll let you close this out man unless you have another one nope that that's it for me man so yeah, I think that you know we're really excited for people who were joined in today. You know, if it was your first time, welcome. We hope you liked what you heard. Uh, if you've been joining us, you know, since the very beginning, my man Chase always coins the phrase. You know, you guys are the shields that guard the realms of fantasy. So thanks for coming back each and every week. We love to have you. And for those newbies who uh, just joined on today, if you're kind of figuring out, you know, how do I follow along? Like, where are we going to get some updates? Uh, you know, where can I find you guys? Well, 
I'm going to tell you. <laughs> if you want to find <laughs> us on social media, we are on uh, every platform. We are on Instagram at Official Ridiculous Patronus. We are on TikTok at Ridiculous Patronus. We're on Facebook, Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. We're on Twitter, RP Factor Fantasy. We're on Snapchat, RP Factor Fantasy. And we have our own website as well, which is ridiculouspatronus.blogspot.com, where Chase does a great job of showing clips that talk about where we're at and covering the projects that we are at the time. So we can follow along through there and get like a visualization of it as well, which is great. Um, on top of that, if you're kind of figuring out where can I find the podcast themselves, you can find us if you have an, if you're an iPhone user, you can find us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you're an Android user, you can find us on Spotify, Google Play, we're on Amazon Music, we're on Audible, we're on Stitcher, we're on Acast, we're on Podbean, our host site, we're on iHeartRadio. We have a YouTube channel as well where we post like new other interesting things that you can find that we do here outside of just the podcast directly. Uh, we do a lot of fun stuff on there. Uh, and then, you know, I, I, at the end, I'll be all of it, guys. We really love the, the audience engagement. So leave us a review, uh, comment on it, like it, subscribe. Uh, we really want to see uh, all the engagement that we possibly can. And, you know, out, outside of that, guys, we're, we're out for the day. But, you know, this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing, signing off. off.